Section 27 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, from the death of Alexander I until the death of Alexander III, 1825 to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 26. Increased Jewish Disabilities Part 2 3. Restrictions in Education and in the Legal Profession A salient feature of that gloomy era of counter-reform was the endeavor of the government to dislodge the Jews from the liberal professions and, as corollary, to bar them from the secondary and higher schools which were the training ground for these professions. What the government had in view was to reduce the number of those privileged Jews who, under the law passed in the time of Alexander II, had been rewarded for their completion of a course of studies in an institution of higher learning by the right of unrestricted residence throughout the empire. The authorities now found it to their purpose to hamper the spread of education among the Jews rather than promote it. The highly placed obscurantists contended that the Jewish students exerted an injurious influence upon their Christian communities from the religious and moral point of view, while the political police reported that the Jewish college men are quick in joining the ranks of the revolutionary workers. The fear of educated Russian subjects who were not of the dominant faith was natural in a country in which Pobedonoschev, the moving spirit of inner Russian politics, looked upon popular education in general as a destructive force, fraught with danger to throne and altar. There can be but little doubt that the previously mentioned imperial resolutions indicating the necessity of curtailing the number of Jews in Russian educational establishments were inspired by the Grand Inquisitor. Notwithstanding the opposition of the majority of the Palian Commission, whose members had not yet entirely discarded the enlightened traditions of the reign of Alexander II, the question was decided in accordance with the wishes of the Tsar. Here, too, as in the case of the temporal rules, the government was resolved to enact the new disabilities by the sovereign will of the emperor without submitting them to the highest legislative body of the land, the Council of State, for fear that undesirable debates might arise in that august body concerning the expedience of putting an embargo on education. On December 5, 1886, the Tsar, acting on the suggestions of the Committee of Ministers, directed the Minister of Public Instruction, Dielanov, to adopt measures for the limitation of the admission of Jews to the secondary and higher educational establishments. For six long months, the minister, whose official duty was the promotion of education, was wavering between a number of schemes designed to restrict education among the Jews. Suggestions for such restrictions came from officials of the ministry and from superintendents of school districts. Some proposed to close the schools only to the children of the lower classes among the Jews, in which 
the unsympathetic traits of the Jewish character were particularly conspicuous. Others recommended a restrictive percentage for Jews in general without any class discrimination. Still others pleaded for moderation, lest excessive restriction in admission to Russian universities should force the Jewish youth to go to foreign universities and make them even more dangerous, since they were bound to return to Russia with liberal notions concerning the political form of government. At last, in July 1887, the Minister of Public Instruction, acting on the above-mentioned imperial resolution, published his two famous circulars limiting the admission of Jews to the universities and to secondary schools. The following norm was established. In the pale of settlement, the Jews were to be admitted to the schools to the extent of 10% of the Christian school population. Outside the pale, the norm was fixed at 5%, and in the two capitals, St. Petersburg and Moscow, at 3%. Although decreed before the very beginning of the new scholastic year, the percentage norm was nevertheless immediately applied in the case of the gymnasia, the real schools, and the universities. In the higher professional institutions, such as the technological, veterinarian, and agronomical schools, the restrictions had been practiced even before the promulgation of the circular or were introduced immediately after it. This was the genesis of the educational percentage norm, the source of sorrow and tears for two generations of Russian Jews, both fathers and sons, now having run the gauntlet. In the months of July and August of every year, thousands of Jewish children were knocking at the doors of the gymnasia and universities, but only tens and hundreds obtained admission. In the towns of the Pale, where the Jews form from 30 to 80 percent of the total population, the admission of Jewish pupils to the gymnasia and real schools were limited to 10 percent, so that the majority of Jewish children were deprived of a secondary education. The position of the gymnasium and real school graduate, who were unable to continue their studies in the institutions of higher learning, was particularly tragic. Many of these unfortunates addressed personal appeals to the Minister of Public Instruction, Dielanov, who, being good-natured, would, despite his reactionary proclivities, frequently sanction the admission of the petitioners over and above the school norm. But the majority of the young men, barred from the college, found themselves compelled to go abroad in search of education and being generally without means suffered untold hardships. Nevertheless, the cruel restrictions could not suppress the need for education in a people with an ancient culture. Those that had failed to gain admission to the gymnasia completed the prescribed course of studies at home under the guidance of private tutors or by private study and afterwards presented themselves for examination for the maturity certificate as externs, braving all the difficulties of this thorny path. Having successfully passed their secondary course, 
they found again their way barred as soon as they wished to enter the universities, and the martyrs of learning had no choice left except to take up their pilgrim staffs and travel abroad. Year in, year out, two processions of emigrants wended their way from Russia to the West. One was traveling across the Atlantic in search of bread and liberty. The other was headed towards Germany, Austria, England, and France in search of a higher education. The former was driven from their homes by a peculiar interdictio ignis et aquae, the other by an interdictio scientiae. Having closed the avenues of higher education to the bulk of Russian Jewry, the government now went a step further and contrived to dispossess even those Jews who had already managed to obtain a higher education in spite of all difficulties. It was not satisfied with barring college-bred Jews from the civil service and an academic career, thus limiting the Jewish physicians and lawyers to private practice. It was anxious to restrict even this narrow field of activity still open to Jews. In view of the fact that the Jewish jurists had no chance to apply their knowledge in the civil service and were entirely excluded from the bench, they naturally turned to the bar, with the result that they soon occupied a conspicuous place there, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Their success was a source of annoyance to the Russian anti-Semites, both those who hated the Jews on principle and those who did so selfishly, being themselves members of the bar. These enemies of Judaism called the attention of the government to the large number of Jewish lawyers at the St. Petersburg bar, a circumstance due partly to the natural gravitation towards the administrative and legal center of the country, and partly to the fact that the admission of Jews to the bar met with less obstruction from the judicial authorities in the capital than in the provinces where professional jealousy frequently stood in the way of the Jews. The reactionary minister of justice, Manasain, managed to convince the Tsar that it was necessary to check the further admission of Jews to the bar. However, from diplomatic considerations, it was thought wiser to carry this restriction into effect, not under an anti-Jewish flag, but rather as a general measure directed against all members of non-Christian persuasions. The restriction was therefore extended to Mohammedans and a handful of privileged Karaites, and the religious intolerance of the new measure was thus thrown into even bolder relief. On November 1889, an imperial ukase decreed as follows, that, pending the enactment of a special law dealing with this subject, the admission of public and private attorneys of non-Christian denominations by the competent judicial institutions and bar associations shall not take place except with the permission of the Minister of Justice under recommendation of the presidents of the above-mentioned institutions and associations. It goes without saying that the Russian Minister of Justice made ample use of the right comfort upon him of denying admission to Jews as public and private attorneys. 
while readily sanctioning the admission of Mohammedans and Karaites, the minister almost invariably refused to confirm the election of young Jewish barristers, however warmly they may have been recommended by the judicial institutions and bar associations. In this way, many a talented Jewish jurist who might have filled the university chair with distinction or might have attained brilliant success in the legal profession was forced out of his path and deprived of an opportunity to serve his country by his labors and pursue a career for which he had fitted himself at the university. Instead, these derailed professionals went to swell the host of those who had been wronged and disinherited by the injustice of the law. 4. Discrimination in military service It seemed as if the government was intent on making a one-sided compact with Russian Jewry. We shall deprive you of all the elementary rights due to you as men and citizens. We shall rob you of the right of domicile and freedom of movement and of the chance of making a livelihood. We shall expose you to physical and spiritual starvation and shall cast you out of the community of citizens, yet you dare not swerve an inch from the path of your civic obligations. A lurid illustration of this unique exchange of services was provided by the manner in which military duty was imposed upon the Jews. Russian legislation had long since contrived to establish revolting restrictions for the Jews also in this domain. Jews with physical defects which rendered Christians unfit for military service, such as a lower stature and narrower chest, were nevertheless taken into the army. In the case of a shortage of recruits among the Jewish population, even only sons, the sole wage earners of their families were of their widowed mothers were drafted, whereas the same category of conscripts among Christians were unconditionally exempt. Moreover, a Jew serving in the army always remained a private and could never attain to an officer's rank. As if the government intended to make sports of the Jewish soldiers, the latter were deprived of their right of residence in the localities outside the pale where they had been stationed and as soon as their term of service had expired were sent back into the territory of the Russian Jewish ghetto. Thus even Nicholas I was out Nicholas. The discharged Jewish soldiers who had served under the old recruiting law enjoyed both for themselves and their families the right of residence throughout the empire. The new military statute of 1874 withdrew from the retired Jewish soldiers this reward for faithfully performed duty and in 1885 the Senate sustained the disfranchisement of these Jews who had spent years of their life in the service of their fatherland. A Jew from Berdichev, Vilna or Odessa who had served five or six years somewhere in St. Petersburg, Moscow or Kazan, was forced to leave these tabooed cities and return home on the very day on which he had taken off his soldier's uniform. Yet, despite this curious encouragement of Jewish patriotism, the government had the audacity to charge the Jews continually with the evasion of their military duty that a tendency towards such evasion was in vogue 
among the Jews admits of no doubt. It would have been contrary to human nature if people who were subject to assaults from above and kicks from below, whose right of residence was limited to one-twentieth of the territory of their fatherland, who were robbed of shelter, air, and bread, and deprived of the hope to place themselves, even by means of military service, on an equal footing with the lowest Russian music, should have felt a profound need of sacrificing themselves for their country, and should not have shirked their heaviest civil obligations to a larger extent than the privileged Russian population, in which cases of evasion were by no means infrequent. In reality, however, the complaints about the shortage of Jewish recruits were vastly exaggerated. Subsequent statistical investigations brought out the fact that, owing to irregular apportionment, the government demanded annually from the Jews a larger quota of recruits than was justified by their numerical relations to the general population in the Pale of Settlement. On an average, the Jews furnished 12% of the total number of recruits in the Pale, whereas the Jewish population of the Pale formed but 11% of the total population. The government further refused to consider the fact that owing to inaccurate registration, the conscription lists often carried the names of persons who had long since died or who had left the country to emigrate abroad. In fact, the annual emigration of Jews from Russia, the result of uninterrupted persecutions, reduced the number of young men of conscription age. But the Russian authorities were of the opinion that the Jews who had remained behind should serve in the Russian army instead of those of their brethren who had become citizens of the free American Republic. The evasion of military duty and the annual shortage of a few hundred recruits as against the many thousands of those enlisted was charged as a grave crime against that very people towards which the government on its part failed to fulfill even its most elementary obligations. Reams of paper were covered with all kinds of official devices to cut short this evasion of military duty by the Jews. On one beautiful April morning of 1886, the government came out with the following enactment. The family of a Jew guilty of evading military service is liable to a fine of 300 rubles, $150. The collection of the fine shall be decreed by the respective recruiting station and carried out by the police. It shall not be substituted by imprisonment in the case of destitute persons liable to that fine. In addition, a military reward was promised for the seizure of a Jew who had failed to present himself to the recruiting authorities. By virtue of this barbarous principle of collective responsibility, new hardship was inflicted upon the Jews of Russia. Since the law provided that the fine for evading military service be imposed upon the family of the culprits, the police interpreted that term liberally, taking it to include parents, brothers, and near relatives. The following procedure gradually came into vogue. In the autumn of every year, the Russian conscription season, the names of the young Jews who had completed their 21st year are called out at the recruiting station from a prepared list. 
when a Jew whose name has been called has failed to present himself on the same day, the recruiting authorities issue an order on the spot, imposing a fine on his family. The police then appear in the house of his parents to collect the sum of 300 rubles. In default of cash, they attach the property of the paupers and have it subsequently sold at public auction. In the case of those who possess nothing that can be taken from them, the police insist on their giving a signed promise not to leave the town. Their passports are taken from them, so that not being able to absent themselves from town to earn a living, they are frequently left to starve. If the parents are dead or absent, the brothers and sisters of culprits and then his grandfathers and grandmothers are held answerable with their property. Thus, a large number of Jewish families were completely ruined merely because one of their members had emigrated abroad or, as was frequently the case, had surrendered his soul to God in his beloved fatherland itself, and the relatives had failed to see to it that the dead soul was stricken from the recruiting lists. Yet, despite all these efforts, there still remained a considerable number of uncollected fines, arrears, as they were officially termed, to the profound regret of the Russian Jew baiters, who had to look on while the victims were slipping unpunished from their hands. End of section 27